All right, the youth can be dismissed for Sunday school. Back behind you, the rest of us go ahead and grab a Bible and turn to the book of Romans. Romans chapter 6. Romans 6. If you don't have a Bible, uh, there should be one somewhere within reach. Definitely grab one so you can follow along in our studies. We continue in our time of worship. And the reason we turn to the Word of God, one reason, is because it is food for our soul, but also we're not worshiping ourselves uh, in our time of worship. We worship God, so we want to hear from Him and sit under His Word, the eternal Word of God. Romans chapter 6, we're in a verse-by-verse study through the book of Romans, and whatever the next passage is, that's the one we're studying. Romans 6, we're looking at verse 8 through 11 this morning, and a welcome to all of you. Good to see you. Thank you for joining us, especially those of you who are newer. It's a, it's a joy to have you all. We're in Romans 6, having started at Romans chapter 1, verse 1. Well, John Newton was uh, an 18th century pastor in England, a, a very faithful pastor, very gifted guy, um, but he wasn't always that way. John Newton was born in England, July 24th, 1725, and he heard Christian stuff growing up, John Newton did, as a kid, Uh, and it kind of went in one ear and out the other. Uh, He confesses, uh, he writes that as as a young guy, I mean, he was wicked. He, he had a foul mouth, he had a foul life, and a foul mind, he says, of himself. Uh, and he ran with such people. He says that he would read Christian things, hear Christian things, but it was like trying to plant corn on a hot sidewalk. It never bore fruit. Uh, in his early teens, he writes, he was on a horse one day, And he falls off the horse right next to a a newly cut razor-edge sharp hedge. And he fell like an inch from getting impaled by this hedge. That shook him up a bit, but no real change. Uh, He then started, his mother uh, tragically passed when he was young. And so his dad, who was a, a sailor, said, you're going to come with me, and I'm going, to, I'm going to teach you how to sail. And they would go up and down the, the eastern Atlantic, around Africa, all over the place. He then joined the Royal Navy, and again, continued to live a foul life. So much so that he got kicked out of the Navy. He was disciplined. And in those days, what they would do, as they did to John Newton, they strip you and whip you publicly for discipline in the Navy, in the British Navy. And when that happened, that that sent him into a a dark bitterness of his life, where he often contemplated suicide. He was enraged and a bitter man. He got back into sailing, and there was a business that had started up, the slave trade, the transatlantic slave trade, where people from Europe got in on the already existing slave trade within Africans trading each other in the slave trade. The Europeans, some Europeans got in on it, as did John Newton. And he went down the coast, sailed all over, ended up in Guinea on the west coast of Africa, working for a slave dealer, and a bizarre thing happened to him He actually became a slave himself. John Newton did. Uh, He ended up becoming a slave. He writes that all he had at one point in his life was an old t-shirt on his back. He he was just in the muck of misery. Uh, His master then transferred him to another trader, and he kind of gets back into the slave trade sailed around. There's so much more to the story. I don't have time to get into all the details. Fascinating life. He's sailing all around. 
And then January of 1748, they are trying to sail from Africa up to England and get blown by the trade winds almost to Brazil and then up to Newfoundland. A little, little off course if you're familiar with geography. As they're, as they're sailing back to England, the ship gets busted apart in a, in a massive storm. And the ship's going down and it's filling with water. And John Newton is under, under the deck. If you're a sailor or in the Navy, pardon me if I misuse the terms here. And his, the captain says, John Newton's running up deck to, to, to help do whatever. And he says, get back down there, I need a knife. So John Newton runs back down under deck, and then he says, and you, another guy, come up here. That guy runs up, and that guy gets swept off the deck, dies, drowns, and never see him again. That shakes Newton. Newton comes back up. The ship is a a, a tattered, shredded two-by-four. Somehow this this skeleton of a ship, it's it's drifting aimlessly all around, and the, the northern Atlantic makes it back to England. A total disaster. And it was then that Newton writes that he said he realized, I cannot make this change that I need to make on my own. I've just been, as it were, shuffling around deck chairs on the Titanic and trying to change my life. I've just been trying to experience this transformation in my life, in my life that I need, and I can't do it. And so he fell down and he bowed his knee in faith to the Lord Jesus Christ and was saved and was washed of his sins and was born again and experienced the gift of regeneration. As he remembered in the foulness of his embittered life that there is a Savior who says, I did not come to call the righteous but sinners to repentance. Luke chapter 5 verse 32. And as Jesus said, It's not those who are well who need a physician, but those who are sick. And as even they said of Jesus, he's a friend of sinners as they mocked him, and Jesus sure is. And John Newton, knowing himself to be a vile sinner, despite having grown up and hearing good things, known and, and convicted and broken over his foul life that he had offended a holy God. And he remembered the Savior Jesus, who said in Matthew chapter 11, verse 28, Come to me, all who are weary and heavy laden, and I'll give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me. For I am gentle and humble in heart, and you'll find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. And as Newton looked to the Savior to not only cleanse him from his sin, but change him from his sin. This is the power of the Lord Jesus Christ, the God-man, who being the second person of the Trinity, didn't see us as too far gone and had a love for us in his heart and said, I'm coming down off of my throne in heaven. And he stepped out of the celestial glory and he joined humanity to himself and was a mere baby in a manger as we celebrated and walked in this life and lived in the garbage of this life, having never sinned, yet tempted in all ways like us. And then he went to the cross and said, as it were, Father, all those who are yours, all those who are foul, vile sinners, outwardly or inwardly foul, vile sinners, place their sin on me. Place their judgment that they deserve on me. And Jesus died for our sins on the cross. And paid for our sins on the cross. That all who put faith in him, not by works, but by faith alone in Christ alone, it is by grace we are saved through faith and this and not of ourselves. It's a gift of God, not by works so that no one can boast. And like Jesus said to the thief on the cross that day next to him, today you'll be with me in paradise. It is an instant forgiveness. It is a complete forgiveness. It is regeneration. And he rose from the dead on the third day that anyone who simply bows the knee of their heart and tells God, I can't do it, like Newton floating on a two-by-four with a nail in it in the North Atlantic, having been a slave trader and an offender of God and a vile man, 
for so many years rejecting the truth that he heard as he was just floating with the sharks and, and seaweed and he just cried out to God and God saved him. Romans 10.13 says, All who call on the name of the Lord will be saved. And the good news of the gospel, the gospel being the good news of Christ's death for sin and resurrection, is not only that God forgives sin. That is great news. Because if you're like me, you have a lot of stuff that needs forgiving. It's stuff that still will need forgiving. It's not just good news that God forgives sin and cleanses sin, but he also also begins to release you from the power of sin in your life. Where sin is no longer your master. You're no longer chained to it as John Newton was for so many years. And this is what we're seeing here in Romans 6. That the power of the gospel to forgive is also the power of the gospel to sanctify. That word sanctify just means to transform into the image of Christ and release you from sin's power and sin's tyranny. And that happened to John Newton. He was so amazed that God would forgive and change a foul man like himself that he went on to write a kind of a significant hymn that some of us may know, Amazing Grace. And God would use him against the transatlantic slave trade and William Wilberforce who uh, served uh, in parliament and in the British government and God used them believers to put an end to that trade. And John Newton would go on to be a fantastic pastor by the grace of God. And so this is the good news of the, uh, this is the, good news of the gospel, beloved, that we're seeing in Romans 6. That from Romans 3 to Romans 5, we've been learning that Christ, who is God, came to die and died on the cross to wipe away the penalty of sin. But that's not the end of the matter. The Romans 6 teaches that Christ's death and resurrection, when believed savingly, when trusted wholeheartedly, when we just put childlike faith in it, that our sins are not only cleansed, but we're released from the power of sin. All whom God saves, he sanctifies. All whom God rescues from the penalty of sin, he also rescues from the power of sin by his grace alone. And that is, that's fantastic news. Absolutely fantastic. So perhaps you're here this morning and maybe you see, you know what, I, I, I need to be, that, that needs to happen to me. What happened to John Newton, that needs to happen to me. I need to not only be released from the penalty of sin, but the power of it. And Romans 6 tells us about that great news. The gospel that not only forgives, but transforms from sin. So with that, follow along as I read. I'm going to start in verse 20 of chapter 5, and I'll read through verse 11 of chapter 6. Verse 20 of chapter 5. God's inspired, inerrant, and sufficient word reads, Now the law came in so that the transgression would increase. But where sin increased, grace abounded all the more. So that as sin reigned in death, even so grace would reign through righteousness to eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. Verse 1, chapter 6. What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin so that grace may increase? May it never be. How shall we who died to sin still live in it? Or do you not know that all of us who were baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? Therefore, we were buried with him through baptism into death so that as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, so we too might walk in newness of life. For if we become united with him in the likeness of his death, certainly, certainly, we shall also be in the likeness of his resurrection, knowing this, that our old man was crucified with him in order that our body of sin might be done away with so that we would no longer be slaves to sin. For he who has died has been justified from sin. Verse 8. Now, 
If we died with Christ, we believe that we shall also live with him, knowing that Christ, having been raised from the dead, is never to die again. Death no longer is master over him. For the death that he died, he died to sin once for all. But the life that he lives, he lives to God. Even so, consider yourselves to be dead to sin, but alive to God in Christ Jesus. This is the reading of the Word of God. And this is fantastic news. The power of Christ to forgive is the power of Christ to transform. There is no separating those things any more than we can divide Jesus in half. When you put simple faith in him and all need to, The whole package is before you. Justification, declared righteous before God forever. Forgiveness of sin. Adoption into God's family, never to be disowned. Eternal life, the promise of heaven one day. And currently in the battles of the muck of this life, transformation, not perfection. The message of Romans 6 is not you're going to be perfect, but it is certainly. That like John Newton there's going to be a shattering of the chains from sin. And that is just great news. As many of us who have bowed the knee to Christ, as you look back on your life, you remember how it was just, you you just migrated from one sin to another. And you might have scrubbed the outside of the cup, but the inside of the cup remained foul. And you might have been able to fool people, but on the inside... God saw you. This is such a great text. This, this text, as you've been seeing, not, not only from verse 8 to 11, the part we're going to look at this morning briefly, but from verse 1 all the way to verse 7, there's lots of contrast. There's lots of talk about death. The word death is used 20 times. The word, the word life is used many times as well. The point is to contrast the the old life in those who by faith have received Christ with the new life. It's a contrast of death to life. It's not saying, well, when when you put faith in Jesus, you know, you, you might be busier one or two Sundays a month in the morning. No, it's a contrast between death and life. Alive to God, excuse me, alive to sin, dead to God, dead to sin, alive to God. It's a major change. Now, there are three words that we've been seeing are very important to understand Romans 6, and that will be the case this morning. Three words. We've been talking a lot about them. I'll repeat them just uh, to refresh our, our mind here. Three words which describe the beauty and the grace of what is happening, what God does to a believer as described in Romans 6. Three words is super important. We understand these. We understand the definition. They're not always mentioned in Romans 6, but the, they, they capture the concepts of what's going on in Romans 6. The three words, kind of in logical, sequential order that we need to know, are regeneration, regeneration, union, Union or union with Christ. And sanctification. So important to understand these words. And the grace. Not just just because, you know, technical encyclopedia, egghead theology, whatever. But because the grace and the power of God that's in them. Regeneration, union, and sanctification. Regeneration is, in short, it's the miracle of salvation when the Holy Spirit comes into the heart of the sinner. The turning on the lights where you are dead to God and now you're alive to God. Regeneration, it means like a new birth. You know, born again. This is described in John 3, 3 to 8. Also in Titus 3, 5. Regeneration. The miracle of God where the Holy Spirit comes into the heart by the grace of God, not our works. And there is a change. 
like Newton experienced and like all believers experience. And then consequent of regeneration, that instant, is union, union with Christ. You are joined spiritually with Jesus. You become one with him, and this is inseparable and irreversible. Union. You, you saw in the text, we've died with Christ, we live with him. We were immersed into his death, we, we rise with him. That's because we're united with him. Consequent of regeneration, and regeneration is the moment we put faith in Christ. When God turns on the light, we see the gravity of our sin. And even more, we see the grace of God. And so we put faith in Christ. Ephesians 2, 8, 9, faith even is a gift consequent of regeneration. And that instant, we're united with Christ. And then our third word, sanctification, describes the change that we begin to experience consequent of the two previous things, regeneration and union with Christ. Sanctification, again, that progressive change in the heart, not scrubbing the behavior, but inside, you know, we're, we're unchanged. Not perfection, but transformation, releasing from the power of sin and being conformed to the image of Jesus Christ. Regeneration, an illustration might help if this is newer to some of us. Regeneration is like the birth of a baby, right? Life begins, you have a new creature. Physical birth can't be repeated, the, the creature, the, the, excuse me, the baby is, is there, there's new life. And then union with Christ is like that baby being permanently united to uh, his or her new family. You're born into a family, this is your family, or the baby's adopted, they're united into that family. And they experience all the blessings and life together with that family. And it's inseparable. And then sanctification is like that baby beginning to grow and beginning to be transformed. And assuming this family is a, a great family, that the baby begins to take on the traits of the new family and the characteristics of a new family. Regeneration, union with Christ, and sanctification. That's all like this bedrock theology that is underneath what's happening in Romans 6. So from, from our, our text this morning, Romans 8 through 11 is a very meaty, stakey piece of text. We're going to cut it up by God's grace. We won't be able to say everything there is to say about it, but we'll see five reasons from the text. We'll see five reasons, similar to what we've been seeing, five reasons why every Christian, everyone who puts faith in Christ, experiences sanctification. Five reasons why every Christian experiences sanctification. And why there is no such thing, by the grace of God, as a Christian who does not experience sanctification. When grace, hits, when grace truly hits you, the grace of God, grace does not leave you the same. Number one, sanctification is certain because of our union with Christ. Because of our union with Christ. Look at verse 8. Now, if we've died with Christ, Paul's presenting this condition. If you, you're united, you've experienced regeneration. If we've died with Christ, we believe we shall also live with him. This is talking about the inseparable union with Christ that every believer experiences, not by our works, not because, you know, we did a great job finally becoming like more type A, more disciplined, more moral, simply by faith in Christ. And you, if you've been with us, you say, well, Paul's talked about that a bunch already in the text. We've kind of seen a lot of stuff about the union with Christ. And every word here is from God, and God sees fit to repeat himself. Right? If you've ever been a parent or you've worked with kids, sometimes repetition is helpful. But union with Christ begins at regeneration. It's the whole reason we, as, as a Christian, you receive forgiveness, justification, transformation, and one day glorification, perfection in heaven and not before that. Because you're united to him. What happens to him happens to you in a sense. What, what union with Christ tells us is that what he experienced, we experience in some way. That's, that's a big 
big point of Romans 6. That what Christ experienced physically, bodily, his death and resurrection, those who put faith in him will experience spiritually, ethically, morally. Death to the old ways of life, like John Newton. Life to newness in Christ. Holiness. Not perfection, but humility and godliness. It's the whole point here. Whatever Christ experienced physically, the believer, because of union with Christ, experiences spiritually. And their thoughts, their mind, by God's grace alone. It's not saying we literally died with him 2,000 years ago and literally rose with him 2,000 years ago. And neither is this talking about physical resurrection for us. It is for him, but for us. We will experience that, those who are united to Christ. That's way in the future. The point of the text here is change today as a believer. We died with him. As Paul said in Galatians 2.20, I've been crucified with Christ. And it's no longer I who live, but Christ who lives within me. And in that life I now live in the flesh, I do so by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself up for me. So, as, as certain as Jesus died on the cross by crucifixion, so certain is it that every person who puts faith in Christ will die to sin. As certain as Jesus rose bodily from the dead, so certain is it that every believer will have a spiritual resurrection and be changed by the grace of God. It's great news. It's to say it another way, if there can be such thing as a believer, a true believer who has not died to sin and is not experiencing sanctification, then there is such thing that Jesus actually didn't die in history and actually wasn't crucified in history and actually wasn't raised in history. And that, of course, is false. Every believer will experience sanctification. Number two, also, every believer will because, number two, the finality of Christ's death. The finality of Christ's death. As we're going through this, again, you're seeing that Paul is making an analogy between what happened to him bodily, physically, and what absolutely will happen to every believer morally, spiritually, transforming in their life. That's the whole point. We're united to him. There's going to be a power that hits you, not because of us, but because of him. The finality of Christ's death. Look at verse 9. Knowing that Christ, having, and notice, knowing, so much of the Christian life is knowing. It's not only that. We need the power of the Spirit. But it is knowing, remembering, preaching to myself that Christ, having been raised from the dead, is never to die again. Wow. That phrase also could be translated, having been raised from the dead, he, Christ, no longer dies. Right. Kind of, kind of, <laughs> kind of obvious. But there's a point here. Christ was crucified, he bled, he had spikes through his arms and his legs and died of trauma and asphyxiation or whatever else it was and was put in the grave. It's amazing he lasted as long as he did on the cross, but he died. The point here is the finality. Verse 9, never to die again. Why is he saying that? What, that seems obvious. What is he doing here? What is the text saying? The never againness of Jesus' death is stressing the never againness of a believer being able to return to the old way of life in duration. You will never again be able to be the old you. In other words, once you put your faith in Jesus. And again, the, the never againness of it is emphasized in verse 10. Look there, beginning of verse 10. For the death he, Christ, died, he died to sin once for all. Once for all. In, in the, the first century Greek there, that phrase once for all isn't talking about people, like for all people. It mean, the word means something that happens and can't be repeated. 
An unrepeatable event is the idea. Christ's death was final when he died. And John records for us in John 19.30, he says it's finished. What's finished? The reason he came to die. To wipe away all of our sins, past, present, and future. It doesn't, it's not to be repeated. You know, some, there's some Christian traditions which say that, you know, he, and celebrate different things where his death is repeated and mystically that he needs to be re-sacrificed, but that's a false view. That in the mass that Christ literally becomes the bread and the cup and he's re-sacrificed, that, that's, that's completely false. Hebrews 7.27 says he doesn't, he doesn't need to die daily like those high priests, speaking of Old Testament high priests, offer up sacrifices, first for his own sins and then for the sins of the people, because this he, Jesus, did once for all when he offered himself. Hebrews 10.10, we've been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. Jesus' death isn't like a down payment on a house and then, you know, he has to keep dying and pay payments to kind of eventually get our sins forgiven. It is once, and there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. It's never to be repeated. His death was so sufficient, it takes care of all sin, past, present, and future. This is about the finality of death. There's no condemnation in him. Like me, maybe some of you are interested in astronomy. Not astrology. Astronomy. Big difference, the L and the M there. Um, and, you know, I only know enough to be dangerous, but uh, black holes are an interesting thing in astronomy. I think it's like God wanted to recreate a little bit when he made these things and to show, like, there's a big difference between me and you guys, like, intellectually. Um, Astronomers say that a black hole is thought to be a massive star which has died and it like has collapsed into itself. And astronomical bodies in space, they all have a gravitational force, a pull. Some stronger, some weaker. And the more, the, the more mass a body has, the more pull it has. And with that gravitational force, they have this thing called escape velocity, which is the velocity needed, the speed needed to get out of its orbit, to like break away. That's why rockets have to go fast out of Earth's orbit to break away. They have the escape velocity of Earth is 25,000 miles an hour. It's fast. But with a black hole, the force is so strong, the escape velocity is so high, it's greater than the speed of light, which is about 287,000 miles per second. And so that's why you don't see any, that's why a black hole is black, because light can't get out. Light is tethered and chained and leashed inside of a black hole, so it's, whatever it's doing, it's not getting out. And astronomers say when something goes into a black hole, the only way you can see a black hole is you see stuff spinning around a black space. And they say at the center of most galaxies is a black hole. Anyhow, they say that when a large astron astronomical body goes into a black hole, it's not coming out. Because it's not going to go faster than the speed of light, which light can't even escape. Once something collapses into it, it's not coming back. There's a finality to it. And this is the situation of Romans 9 and 10 here with the finality of Christ's death. Once you have put faith in Jesus, the old man, your old man has like gone down into the grave with Christ and he's not coming back out. He's held by a force and has died by a force stronger than any black hole. You are new, and we need to preach this to ourselves. Not perfect, but new. Different. Released from the power of sin. Because of the finality of Christ's death, there's a finality to the old you. And that is fantastic news. Third, we all experience sanctification because of death's mastery destroyed. Death's mastery destroyed. Death's mastery destroyed. There's this peculiar phrase, you may have observed it. Look in verse 9. It says, death no longer is master over him, over Christ. 
That's kind of weird. Death no longer has mastery. So you're saying death did have mastery over Jesus? How did death have mastery over the Son of God? First, what it's not saying. It's not saying that Jesus, you know, sinned and, you know, was kind of under the weight of his own sin. And therefore, death. Yeah, the only reason death came in, we know, we learned from Romans 5.12, is because of sin. Death is the consequence of sin. It's not saying Jesus sinned and therefore, you know, is dying for his own sins or he was under the mastery of death or sin. No, Hebrews 4.15 tells us that he was tempted in all ways like us, except he was without sin. He who knew no sin became sin for us so that we might become the righteousness of God in him, 2 Corinthians 5.21. So what's it saying here? It is saying this, that the blessed Son of God, he stepped out of heaven because God can't die as spirit, right? Can't die. But if he takes a body upon himself, he can. God takes a body to himself, and then Jesus is identifying with us. That's why he got baptized. Not because he needs to pay for it, not because he's sinful, to show union with us, that union again. And that's the beginning of showing it. And then his ultimate display of union with us, as far as our sins are concerned, is at the cross. And so, though death and sin had zero mastery over Jesus, in being united to all those who will go to heaven, at that moment on the cross, he comes under the penalty of our sin, the power of death, as it says in Romans uh, 6, 9, the mastery or the rulership of death for us, for us, so that sin's tyranny, sin's penalty, death's rule would be broken for us. That's what's happening here. He chose to come under the lordship of sin and death in that moment on the cross so that the lordship of sin and death would no longer be lord of us, those who put faith in him. And it's in the same, the similar idea in Romans, excuse me, in Romans 6.10, where it says he died to sin. That's kind of an interesting phrase. You never see that. He died to sin once for all. Huh. Usually it says he died for sin. Again, that once and for all payment is the idea. Dying to it just means it's, it's, it's shattered. It's penalty and power is shattered for those who put faith in him. So there's kind of a syllogism inherent to this phrase here, to, this, to these verses. Death for Christ no longer has mastery over him in the way in which we just observed from the text, number one. Number two, every believer is inseparably united to Christ. And so therefore... Therefore, since we're united to Christ, Christ no, death no longer has mastery over him, sanctification will absolutely, certainly happen in every believer. Death and sin will not be your master for those of you who put faith in Christ. Fourth, number four. Very simply here, every believer will experience sanctification number four because Christ lives. Because Christ lives, because he's alive. Because he's alive. Again, notice in the text, Paul is not saying, he's not giving commands. Well, you try hard to be dead to sin and make yourself dead to sin. This is all what has happened to Christ and what God has done. And you unite with him by faith and what happens to you spiritually, morally. He lives. Verse 9, Christ having been raised from the dead. Verse 10, the life he lives, he lives to God. He rose bodily. It happened. Over 500 people saw him alive. That's super sufficient for a matter to be confirmed in the court of law. And again, the point isn't that we will physically rise one day. Those are different passages that will happen. But just as he rose bodily, everyone by faith in him who is united to him will rise spiritually which is to say you'll live a risen life, a life of holiness, a life where it's a battle at times, but overall the joyful delight of submission, of sweet submission and tenderness 
to the word of God, which is true freedom. If the son has set you free, you are what? You're free indeed. And apart from him, you're not. You're not free. Up until I was 23, when I lived a foul life, I would try to flatter myself at times and say, I'm free, I can do whatever. I was a slave of Satan. And my vile thoughts and my vile behavior. I was a, walking around with shackles and blinders on. Look how free I am, look how free. I was dead in sin. And because Christ was raised in his grace, he raises us spiritually. The resurrection, we don't think about this a lot, but we should. The resurrection not only guarantees you will rise one day physically, it guarantees you'll live a risen life now. A life of holiness. Think about that. Not only future benefit, present benefit, beloved. Christ's resurrection guarantees that everyone united to him will walk in holiness. And then fifth and last. Fifth reason every Christian will experience sanctification. God commands us to count on it. Number five, God commands us to count on it. Verse 11. He commands us to count on it. Count on what? You'll live that resurrection life, sanctification. Where do you see that in the text? Look at verse 11. Even so, and I like that even so, the, in, the, in the original language, it's, it's a parallel. It's an analogous parallel. In this way also is the idea. It follows, therefore, is the idea. The wording makes a parallel between what was just said and what's about to be said. Even so, just as, just as what? Christ was risen from the, Christ died and was risen from the dead. Verse 11, consider yourselves to be dead to sin, but alive to God in Christ Jesus. This verse, this verse has been a joy and a spiritual launch pad for believers throughout the millennia. Just a, a freeing sigh of relief, this verse has been. Let's break it down in the last couple minutes we have here. Several wonderful things here. First, what it doesn't mean, this isn't just positive talk. Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones, in his excellent commentary, says there was a phenomenon in his day called cooism. I might be mispronouncing it. Where it's just, you just talk yourself into positive situations. Not that. It's not that here. This, this isn't just, you know, sort of empty self-flattery to kind of get myself to shift into, you know, third gear. Nothing like that. Neither is it saying, when you consider yourself dead to sin and alive to Christ, well, then it will happen. It's not saying that. It's not saying, just tell yourself enough, and then it happens. not saying that. The meaning of this, of the Greek word consider, it has the idea of believing something and acting upon something that is already true, that's already happened. Believe it's true because it happened. Cling to this fact because it's a fact, is the idea. Believe, cling to. And the English word consider is not strong enough. It needs to, it, it should say something like absolutely cling to this, hold to this, preach yourself to this, preach this to yourself, that you've been, you've died to sin and been made alive to God through Christ Jesus. Because it's true. Furthermore, this is a command. The word consider is a command. We are commanded to do this. By the way, if you've been with us, how many commands have there been so far in Romans from 1-1 up until now? Zero. There has not been a single command in the book. And I think that is amazing. We have studied 148 verses in Romans so far, and there have been zero commands. Why? What's God, what, what, what's God doing there? This is what he's doing. Every command in Scripture, beloved, is built on a powerhouse of a structure of theology and truth and doctrine. 
Sometimes we want just, just give me a quick, you know, just vending machine, give me something to do. God says, nope. I, I want you to understand my grace first. And I want you to understand the love of God in Christ Jesus before I tell you a single thing to do. Here's the first command. Believe what I have done in you as a believer, if you're a believer. That you're dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. All God's commands stand upon rich theology. By the way, the original tense, the tense of the verb here of this command, consider, it means continually, unceasingly, Believe and consider and know that you're dead to sin and alive to God. Not like intermittently. It doesn't say, well, on Sunday, we know when you're feeling like a pretty good moral person, then, 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 then consider. Always be considering. Also, we know this is an empty talk because God never commands us to do something that's false or empty or, or to believe something that is fairy tale. Never. So this is true. This is reality. This is a victory verse. If you would fall down and put faith in Jesus and experience the change that we all need. I, I, need, I don't know about you, but as I struggle with my own sin and my own battles, I need victory verses like this sometimes. And this is one of them. Alive, dead to sin, alive to God, in Christ Jesus. Do not pass too quickly by that. In Christ Jesus. It is so good. He's again emphasizing. Every time you see in Christ Jesus, you see that phrase 91 times in the New Testament. It emphasizes our union with Christ. 91 times. Again, the reason we have this death to sin, alive to God, this victory is because of union with him. The certainty of sanctification for every Christian is fantastic news. So what? Let me just close with a couple quick so what's. So what's? This is proof of the Christian faith. First so what? This is proof of the Christian faith. How could someone like John Newton just change? How could someone like me and the foulness of my life before Christ begin to think differently and, and, and even have any kind of desire for God? The change a believer experiences and you experience is just very powerful proof that Jesus is real, he really died, he's really risen, and there is a power from him when you put faith in him. Second, the certainty of your sanctification. Notice the text, it says, it's been saying it depends entirely on Christ's finished work, not on you. It depends entirely on Christ's finished work. That's a, that's a rest fact. A fact that gives rest. This isn't saying, well, how good you are, and, you know, like, let's see how early you can get up and how many laps you can run. It just says, this is all true because God did it. Because Jesus died and rose. Third, the believer will never fall away. There will, no, there will never be one, I used to be a Christian. Because there can never be, well, Christ actually didn't die. Christ actually didn't rise. He's going to go back in time and like reverse it. Because remember, the change of a Christian is hinged and tied to and dependent upon the death he died bodily and the resurrection he experienced physically. Therefore, being united to him, nobody will fall away. Nobody will go back to life in Adam and die in Adam and go to hell. Who has truly been saved, regenerate, united to Christ? First John 2.19 gives more data on that. We don't have time to get into it. And then finally, if, if Romans 6 hasn't happened to you, and maybe you thought you've been a Christian, if Romans 6 hasn't happened to you, then neither has Romans 3, 4, and 5. Which is to say, if you haven't experienced a change, not perfection, but a change that is toward God, a love for Christ, a sweet submission to his word, his word coming alive, a desire for Jesus, for holiness, 
there's people. If that hasn't ever happened to you, then neither has what God has been explaining to us in Romans 5, salvation happened to you. If perhaps maybe God has shown you, you know what, I thought I was a believer, but Romans 6 describes someone different than me. I haven't been crucified with Christ. I don't repent. I, I, I don't have a sorrow over the sins I commit against others, nor much of an awareness to where I confess them and deal with them. And I just kind of blame stuff on other people and I get mad at people and it's their fault. And I have these little bitter things and there's no change in me. If that's you, there's just such great news. That God isn't like, well, too bad for you. No, God is like, I'm a tender savior. And don't think, well, I'm going to go do eight moral things today to kind of make myself feel better. That's like taking a Flintstone vitamin when you need a heart transplant. Just confess it to Jesus Christ, who's the good shepherd. Fall down and tell him, I can't do it. Bow the knee of your heart and confess to him, I can't. I can't do this. I need you, Lord Jesus, to prolong this death and spiritual resurrection for me. And he says, come to me again. Come to me, all who are weary and heavy laden. He says, all who call on the name of the Lord will be saved. Perhaps today is the day for you to do that. And don't delay. Don't delay. Today is the day of salvation. Father in heaven, thank you for your love. Thank you for the hope we have that's revealed in this text through the person and finished work of Jesus. The hope to be forgiven and the hope to be changed. I pray that if there's anyone in here who needs that change this morning, needs that forgiveness, needs that power, that they would just simply call out to you, Father, and put faith in Jesus Christ. And that all of us who have bowed the knee to Christ and by God's grace have experienced the Romans 6 change. Father, may we continue to excel still more and grow in the resurrected life of humility, love for one another, being gracious with each other, seeking to be united despite our differences, burying little offenses and bitterness and seeking to demonstrate a sweet love to each other a oneness, a yielding, humble, Christ-like spirit, the new life, which is the free life. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen.